0: Hey, Next on the T Nation, thanks for tuning in to this segment of the show. I really appreciate all your support. If you're enjoying the show, please go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for us in their Hot 50 list. You'll see a tab to vote right there on their homepage. Stay up to date with our guest schedule by going online to nextonthetea.net. I really appreciate you. Enjoy the segment. Before we get started, I always like to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. As I said to you before, my buddies and I, we went up there for our annual golf trip, and it was simply amazing. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And the course lived up to every expectation that we had. I can't say enough great things about the place, folks. Go online to themacklemore.com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, "Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen." And Golf just agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why we're all saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw, check. Low fade. Check, bump and run, out of the sand or flop shot. Guess what? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than the mall, and that's the new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit the ball high over the trees, under, or maybe even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check it out online by going to tailormadegolf.com for more information. All right, now back with me here on Next on the T is PGA Tour legend Hal Sutton. Hal is a great follow on social media at Hal Sutton Golf and online at HalSuttonGolf.com. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, his podcast, Be the Right Club Today, made the podcast Hot 50 list this month, jumping in at number 24. You can watch and subscribe to Hal's show on YouTube. It's also available on a number of podcast sites like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For those of you who haven't joined me before when Hal has been a part of the show, and you may not remember what a great career he's had so far, let me give you a quick reminder. He was named the 1980 College Player of the Year. He won 14 times during his college career. He was a two-time All-American and led Setonary to the NCAA Tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. He won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship, turned pro in 1981. He got his first win on tour at the 1982 Walt Disney World Classic, and that year he was named the TOUR's Rookie of the Year. In 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. In 1998, he won the TOUR Championship here in Atlanta. In 2000, he won the Players' Championship for a second time, by one stroke over Tiger Woods. He captained the 2004 US Ryder Cup team. He backed up his 14 college victories with 14 more on the PGA Tour. He finished second 18 times. He has 135 top 10s and 239 top 25 and should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. And it's always a thrill to have him with me on next on the tee. Hey, Hal, how are you, my friend?
1: I'm good, Chris. Thanks for all the uh, the nice words there. You know, you said so. Are when when you said about it. Let me tell you, uh, the plug in days are over for
0: sure. (laughs) 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 I never like to count you out. You know, I'm I'm sort of one of those guys that, you know, keeps the fingers crossed. You never know. You might show up one day out on the Champions Tour and things continue. So I never want to close it out for you, my friend.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. But these uh, three artificial joints are telling me, take it easy on me. Take it easy on me. So, <laughs> um,
0: I <did. laughs> uh, Hal, I want to start our time tonight by getting your thoughts on uh, on Olympic golf. Do you, do you like seeing golf as uh, an Olympic event? And what'd you think of uh, Xander Schauffele's gold medal performance?
1: Oh, well, I thought he thought he made a par on last hole. Showed some guts by doing it. You know, he he showed discipline, and uh, those are the things that you have to do in order to win. I think. Uh, This is going to help him uh, in different moments and years to come. And uh, he showed a lot of poise, and uh, I I thought it was a great victory for him.
0: To that end, Hal, and I was sort of wondering the same thing. I mean, Xander's a guy that we've been waiting for for a few years to kind of get over the hump in a major. He's had so many close finishes, seconds, top fives, top tens, but just hasn't gotten over that hump. Is this something that can help him with his confidence to get over that hump? Can he draw from this or is the, the next major, which isn't until next April at the Masters? Is that too far away?
1: No, I think he's definitely going to draw from this. I really do. I think he, you know, there were major championship winners in the tournament, you know, that he beat and I think this will be a positive thing for him.
0: What did you uh, make of Rory's comment that he never tried so hard to finish third in his life? <laughs>
1: I, I think that's probably right, I think uh you know uh that was a big playoff and uh I think everybody in there wanted to win it and, or you know wanted to win the playoff and uh uh interesting you know i I was involved in a playoff that had in the team championship there was a five way playoff which put ten players in the playoff and it gets a little bit, uh, you're unaware of what's going on all the time when there's that many people in the playoffs. They separated it to where everybody was playing in two different groups there. Uh, when we were in the playoff, we only had time for one hole. So, uh, it had to go fast and I got lucky and hit it about four or five feet and made Birdie on a par three and Raymond and I won. But you know, big playoffs can go on for a long time.
0: So, how do you think an Olympic gold medal is that going to be growing in stature now? I mean, we've, we've had, we've had golf in the Olympics twice. It's certainly not a major, but could it get up there sort of like a a player's championship, maybe just sort of half tick below being one of the majors?
1: Well, I certainly hope so. You know, anytime I ever plowed for my country, I was that, that got my going flowing and, uh, I love watching the Olympics. Uh, uh, I love, I, I hope that golf, uh, embraces the Olympics. I know that the, the hierarchy in the game, uh, wants golf to be uh, embraced at the Olympics. So let's hope that it does.
0: Uh, last time you were on the show, we talked about Lee Westwood and how he settled for second place at the Players Championship by not going for the flag on 17 when he needed birdie to catch Justin Thomas, and and since then it seems like Louis Oosthuizen has had a summer filled with finishing second. It feels like he's led every major through 54 holes, but it wound up finishing second or third. What do you make of Louis' summer and uh, all the second or third place finishes?
1: Well, I think he's had a fantastic summer. he's played great and uh, he's elevated his game and I can tell you the difference between second and first is not much and it comes down to one shot most of the time and uh, maybe a good break um you know he's played fantastic and if I were him, I'd be gaining momentum and seeing things positive you know the world uh I've seen some people where they try to criticize that he's finished second in all of these tournaments, you know, and haven't been there knowing how hard it is to win an event like that. You know, he played great, played solid. And, uh, you know, I look for him to continue to play well with the way he's played so far this year.
0: Hal, I want to get kind of a mental playing lesson from you because one of the Things that was a head-scratcher about Louis Summer was his decision at the U.S. Open to lay up on 18. After he hit his tee shot in the rough, his only real shot at possibly making the eagle he needed to tie John Rahm was going for the green in two and, and hoping for the best, hoping he had enough club to get the ball up and reach the green. Instead, he laid up, hoping to hole out from 75 yards. What did you think about his playing decision to clearly play for second place? And how do you teach the mentality of winning versus settling for second or third?
1: Well, the elevated money has hurt that a little bit. Uh, you know, second versus third pays a lot more money. <laughs> and uh these guys are when they don't feel like they quite have a chance or they're taking on too much risk in order to win a tournament um they seem to settle and make sure that they get wherever they're at like in louis place there he finished second and he didn't want a chance hitting it in the water so he laid it up and um i'm seeing more and more of that you know these guys are making you know if they have four or five good tournaments they make you know a couple of million dollars and they can uh loaf the rest of the time. <laughs> so when they get up there and they're in the second, third, fourth position, they're trying to hold on to their position as much as they are trying to win a tournament. And I can tell you this, you you get into that position, you really got to try to win. You you got to pull out all stops to try to win. And, you know, I, my answer back to this is, is, you know, when you said I finished second 18 times, I had no idea how many times I finished second. We had Randall Chamblee on, and I was talking about, on our podcast, and I was talking to him about winning versus finishing second, and he said, man, he gave me every detail of the one tournament that he won. Every detail. And so I said, well, did you finish second? He said, yeah, I finished second one time. I said, do you know in detail what that was like? Well, no, I don't really remember that. I mean, (laughs) you know, winning is everything. Everybody remembers winning. Nobody remembers
0: second place yeah take that a half step further i know jack nicholas can recite every shot he hit and the tournaments that he won particularly the majors but if you ask him about the ones that he finished second or any point anywhere else he doesn't remember what he shot he can't tell you about anything that happened is that is that part of the mentality that you know you are so focused on winning you know what second third fifth whatever doesn't really make any difference I'm, i'm not committing any of that to memory
1: I think that has something to do with it. I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when you have success, uh, you celebrate success, you don't forget success. And, uh, when you don't quite get there, you know, whether it's a mistake or whether you just didn't, you know, give it a hundred percent or you settled, whatever the case may be, you kind of, uh, don't preserve that to your, your memory banks. <laughs> you let it go.
0: That's sort of like in football, right? They they tell you to forget the last play. If you're a cornerback and just got burned, you forget that last play and you move on from there. Don't let that, uh, don't let that come into the next play. Sort of like in golf, right? I mean, if you have negative thoughts, you're going to let that carry over into the next hole, the next tournament, whatever. You got to, you got to forget the last play.
1: And I can tell you this that when there is a time that someone makes a mistake that costs them a bunch, uh, in a major tournament or in a big tournament, uh, where they're trying to win or, or get up higher on the, uh, finish higher, uh, they don't forget that mistake. That mistake lingers in their head for a long time. So they're trying not to make that mistake too. And you know, that's a difficult task. You know, you got to try to win and you got to try to avoid trying to keep from making a mistake, too.
0: How do you not let the bad mistake, the one to your point that cost you, you know, immediately I think of Jordan Spieth at at the Masters a few years ago, how do you not let that scar you? How do you take the, you know, here's the lesson I learned from that and now I'm going to move forward. How do you not let it ruin your career going forward, but take it for what it is, an experience that you'll learn from and not make again?
1: Well. You know, I had one of those major instances in my life in nineteen eighty three right before I won the uh p g a championship I had a six shot lead at Andrewzar Bush and I blew the six shot lead on Sunday. I didn't think at the time I thought if anybody spotted me six shots, there's no way anybody in the world could beat me and lo and behold, Calvin Pete beat me, and it wasn't i mean Calvin played pretty good, but it was really I beat myself, and I was scarred from that, and uh I remember. I didn't sleep at all that night and I played at the Cavalier Club at Virginia Beach the next day and shot 60 the next day. And, uh, because I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want that to, you know, identify me as a choker basically. So when I came home, I told my dad, I said, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to let this drive me. I'm going to let this boil inside me. The mistake that I made. And it's going to drive me to not doing that again. And I tell you, I lived it and breathed it and, sle- and slept it for however many days it was in between those two tournaments. And I was determined, and I opened with 65 at Riviera. Shot 66 second round, 72-71, and the majors always get harder on the weekends. But uh, I ended up winning by one, and uh, that drove me to make sure I was on the money.
0: How we've also talked in the past about the pressure of expectations that were placed on you early in your career, and a guy who I feel like is in a similar position now is Ricky Fowler. I mean, he's won five times out on tour. This is his twelfth full season out there, but it's been about two and a half years since that last win at the Waste Management Open in February of 2019. But 73 top tens, including three since his last win, are, are we putting too much pressure, too many expectations? On Ricky, because of his early success and what a great guy he is. We're all rooting for him. Or does, you know, the expectation of win, is that just come with us? that just a part of it. When you've had early success, guess what? People are going to put that on you and we expect you to win more. And particularly a guy as talented as him, we expect him to win majors.
1: Well, if you have early success, the world starts watching and you know, Ricky is uh a little bit different than everybody else. He wears you know uh loud colors and uh look at me stuff you know and and he's got a game that says "Look at me," and when you have all of that, you gain attention and with attention comes expectations, and you know he's got tons of followers and everybody's pulling hard for him and And then whenever you don't meet their expectations, everybody's got an opinion as to why you're not meeting their expectations. And the truth is, he can't avoid listening to it. You know, wherever he goes, someone's saying something. And that makes it tough. Um, You know, he's, uh, as he didn't win as much as he wanted to, he started looking at, I'm sure he had told me this, but. I'm sure he's been looking at, okay, where do I need to improve? And I think he started working on trying to hit it further. And, uh, you know, we try to change our fingerprint sometimes. And when we try to change our fingerprint, uh we run into some difficulties. And, you know, he was fantastic putter. And all of a sudden, his putting is not quite as good. And I've said this a thousand times, you know, You can work on weaknesses to try to make them better, but you have to add time to your practice rather than forsake something that is your strength, because your strength always has to be your strength. You cannot ever let that disappoint, uh, and be the same player. So, you know, I'm sure Ricky has gone through a lot of these these things, uh, where he's trying to improve weaknesses and uh, change his fingerprint, like I said. And, you know, I, we had Michael Breed on our, uh, podcast today and he said something that was brilliant, and I thought he talked about, uh, there are pretty players and they're dirty players. And what he meant by dirty players was, is, uh, people that are passionate that will do anything to win. He called me a dirty player, you know, not dirty as in, uh, doing anything dirty. It's just I'm passionate and I get in the dirt if that's what I got to do to get in the dirt to win. And, you know, uh he made the statement that we have a lot of pretty players in the world today. And I thought it was a pretty good explanation of golf right now.
0: Hal, I want to take you back for a moment to that 2000 Players Championship and just at the end. Because as I've watched that now, it uh, feels like a hundred times. um One of the things that has jumped out to me is when you tapped in on 18 and you embraced your caddy, Freddie Byrne, you guys did sort of a combination high five handshake sort of thing. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of emotion. I felt like pumping through your hand into Freddie's hand. It wasn't just, hey, we won a golf tournament. It seemed like it was deeper. Than that, do you remember the emotion racing through you as you and uh, Freddie embraced hands?
1: Well, you know, Freddie was my friend from the time I was 15 years old. On Freddie used to follow me around when I was a kid, and he said, "How you're going to be a great player one day." And when you are, he said, "I'm going to caddy for you," and he did. And you know, that was a that was a moment that he and I shared together that. Um, we had both sacrificed a lot to get to that point and when you've sacrificed a lot um, you're passionate about it and you know there were many days that he and I practiced 6 and 8 hours and we didn't have a dry thread on us uh we we lived in Shreveport, Louisiana. We never moved and we'd go home and go to work at the golf course and we'd go out by ourselves and you know the humidity would be 90% and you know, we'd practice and not hit six and seven hundred balls. I wouldn't have a dry thread on me, nor would he. And uh, when you when you sacrifice like that and you have a moment like that, that we had there. uh There's no words that can describe how you feel. It was just uh, Freddie was my best friend. And he shared that moment with me.
0: How just a couple more before I let you go. And I want to get your thoughts on the Brooks and Bryson rivalry. That's become a major topic of conversation all year. When I look back over time, I mean, you know, Jack Nicholson and Arnold Palmer, they were rivals for decades, but it wasn't like this. Azinger and Seve had a pretty heated rivalry, particularly around the Ryder Cup. Is the Brooks-Bryson thing, is, is that good for golf?
1: <laughs> it's not golf like I know let me put it that way. I mean, it seems childish to me, but, um, you know, I when I saw the uh $40 million that the tour is putting up for basically a popularity contest, uh, it it seems like it might bring this sort of thing on more. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to jump out on him and have an opinion here. You know, I don't see how anybody can beat Tiger in that. He's got 6 million followers on Twitter you know, he's going to win that contest. <laughs> he he's the he is the needle. He doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. So, I mean, this might be an annuity for Tiger Woods, really.
0: And, how you captained the Ryder Cup team back in 2004. Steve Stricker is the captain this year. And now he has sort of the unenviable task of having to deal with Brooks and Bryson as members of this year's Ryder Cup team. So you got those two guys in the team room. And let's not forget that Brooks and DJ got into it on the plane heading over to the last Ryder Cup matches over in France. And then just for kicks, let's, let's throw Patrick Reed into the mix. And now you've got a potential that this thing could turn into a circus. How do, how does Strick get these guys to become a team and to get along at least for a while? And so this thing doesn't turn into a circus at whistling straight.
1: Well, there's only one way to do that. And I'm not sure it can be done. You know, everybody has to put a bigger cause ahead of themselves. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what social media and uh, the popularity of golf and everything else has caused. I mean, self is first. And, uh, you know, sometimes the unsung hero that's quiet, that is, uh puts something else ahead of himself, I'll give you a great example. Right there in, in Atlanta, Georgia, where you're at, Larry Nelson. You know, Larry Nelson never put himself ahead of this, and he had an incredible Ryder Cup record. Um, you know, I think that if somehow Steve can point out to these guys that this is bigger than them, maybe they've got a chance. But if their personalities are going to be, I'm bigger than this, and without us, this doesn't exist, this tournament doesn't exist without us. That's the wrong attitude to take up there. Instead, take the attitude, I'm playing for my country, and this is giving me a place to showcase my abilities for my country. If they could take that attitude out there, well, then the U.S. has a chance.
0: How? before I let you go, remind our listeners about the great academy you have down there in Houston and how they can get a lesson from you either in person if they're in the area or even over on video.
1: Well, it's Hal Sutton Golf, uh, and uh, we have our own website of Hal Sutton Golf, and uh, we have our podcast, which you've talked about, Be the Right Club, today. And um, happy to work with anybody that would like a little information. We also just started this thing called Let's Talk Golf, which is more about the mind game and it's basically interacting with me. We do a zoom call. Everybody can join that. You can find out about that on our, uh, on our website. And it's pretty cool because we talk about all the mind instead of, uh, the swing. What I've learned mostly from teaching as long as I have most people, it's harder as you age to make changes to your gospel. But if you inventory your game, what you have and what you don't have, and you play into your strengths and away from your weaknesses, and you learn how to sharpen your mental approach and your mindset, you can become a better player with what you have.
0: Well, Hal, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always an honor to get to spend time with you. I can't thank you enough, my friend. You're fantastic.
1: Thanks, Chris. I always enjoy being on the show with you.
0: Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Give my best to Chase as well. Look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Okay. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye.
0: See you, Hal. That's a great Hal Sutton. You want to talk about Pretty Cool. Pretty Cool is getting to spend some time with Hal and uh, kind of pick his brain, hear his stories. And then, like I say, go follow him on social media. Check out uh, the new stuff with the mental game. It's fantastic stuff and uh, get a lesson from him. If you're anywhere near Houston, you need to go check out the academy. And if you're not, you can go online to HowSuttonGolf.com and send him a video of your swing and get to work with him that way. Either which way, Hal Sutton's an amazing person, and I have really enjoyed getting to know him. Look forward to having him back on the show again soon.